You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to the Pain Matters Podcast. I'm Dr. Shravni Durbakala, anesthesiologist and interventional pain physician at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. You might also know me as the creator and host of painrounds.org. Today, I'm really quite excited to be here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Amal Soin. Amal is an incredibly impressive pain physician, inventor, entrepreneur, and angel investor. He is only about 15 years out of fellowship, but he has five degrees. He has raised over $100 million in funding. He has created six drugs and at least five devices, which is just truly unbelievable and just so inspiring. Amal, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Of course. Amal, so, you know, let's, there are so many things that you have done in your life and in your career, but let's start by talking about your own pharmaceutical company that you created called Soin Neuroscience. So could you tell us a little bit about your vision, your mission, and your purpose? Well, I'll start by when I was a medical student, and I, I remember distinctly, um, it was in the not, late 90s, maybe 1998 or 1999, and on the cover of Time Magazine, um, it said chronic pain, America's new epidemic. And I opened the magazine and I was reading about how something like a hundred million Americans will suffer from chronic pain at some point in their lifetime. And basically the way they we are treating it isn't really all that great. It hasn't changed in several decades and a lot of opioids, right? And I thought about that and thought, wow, what an opportunity for me in my career in medicine in my lifetime that will probably see such impactful change and there's so much room for improvement. And so as I was getting into my research mindset uh, after fellowship, uh, I really wanted to focus on trying to develop um, some analgesics, oral analgesics in particular, that were non-opioid based. Um, and as a result, sort of ended up uh, on this journey with soy neuroscience. So our vision there is to develop compounds and drugs um, that are non-opioid in nature, that are non-sedating, but still have an impactful change uh, for pain. And what an important mission, given our current context and climate. And also, you know, we're seeing every time you turn around, there's like a new device, right? But the innovation in the pharmaceutical market, it's a lot more time consuming, it's a lot more expensive, and you don't see everything turning around that quickly. So what an important place to innovate in. But you really took on a big endeavor to create your own pharmaceutical company. I mean, that's a big thing. So tell us about how you went about that. Well, it was an interesting start, actually, to begin with. Um, you know, as you mentioned, um, I'm also an angel investor. And with Soy Neuroscience, the way that started was um, it's actually a very small investor in a company that was trying to treat peripheral artery disease. Um, and we were doing a phase two trial, and I was involved in developing the study endpoints. And as a pain doctor, I thought, you know, we should put like a brief pain inventory in there in an SF36 and, and just kind of look at some pain endpoints because those patients also have a lot of pain. And it turns out when we got the data back, the most significant statistical improvement was actually in, in the pain metrics. Um, so as a result, we sort of pivoted into, um, you know, using this drug or compound to treat pain. Um, and 
things happen, right? Every day, your day progresses and every month things happen and opportunities present themselves to you. And in this particular case, this startup was funded by angels and some venture capitalists. Um, they funded some drug development work, uh, clinical trial work, a phase one and a phase two. Uh, millions of dollars were spent. And then, like a lot of startups that have issues, um, difficult time to raise capital, and they ran out of money. Uh, as a result, I had an opportunity to, to acquire the asset. And so when I did that, I, I basically bought the patents that they had for one dollar because no one else wanted them. Uh, and the venture capitalists were burnt out. Uh, and some of them were my own patents that, that I'd filed uh, as a result of working with this company. Uh, and then I ended up starting Soy Neuroscience uh, out of that. Really incredible. So you found opportunity really in amidst challenge. And this type of entrepreneurship will always have many challenges, as you, I'm sure, will tell us about more as we get through this. But recently, you all developed a drug for painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And I know you've developed many drugs, six in total, but this particular condition has gotten a lot of attention recently. You know, in the STEM market, um, there's a new FDA approved indication for PDPN. There's also other things that are coming out. Cutenza now is working on PDPN. And it, it's an area where we certainly need innovation and the drugs that are on the market just aren't good enough. So tell us about the drug, where you are in the FDA approval process, as well as um, commercialization. Sure. Well, first, let's talk about the drug, right? And, and actually, let's talk about diabetic peripheral neuropathy in general. So remember, the drug was developed to um, treat peripheral artery disease, PAD, uh, and it's actually sodium nitrate. And what we've discovered is in ischemic tissue, uh, particularly in diabetics, uh, in the small microvascular circulation, uh, that if you administer nitrite to them, it can actually induce endothelial growth and endothelial health. And when you think about a diabetic, for the same reason that when they cut their foot, it doesn't heal, for the same reason that they get retinopathy, and for the same reason that they get nephropathy, all boils down to breakdown in the microvasculature, the endothelial tissue, right? Um, so if we could solve that issue, um, we believed we could solve pain. Uh, and that's what we did. And we ran a phase two trial. I had similar challenges to actually raise capital because at this top point, I had soy neuroscience and I had patents, right? Um, I couldn't raise money. It was very difficult to sell the story and I was stuck in a position. Uh, but I did have one advantage uh, at the time, I actually owned my house. Um, so I went to a bank and I took a line of credit against my home to fund a phase two trial. So at this point, I'm all in, right? If the trial works, I'd be able to raise capital and I'd be able to pay myself back. If the trial fails, well, I have really put my family in an extremely difficult situation. But you can't hit a home run unless you, you swing, right? You got to try. Uh, if I didn't do that, this thing would have died on the vine. But, but I did it. I went for it. To much consternation with my wife, um, there's, a, there's a couch in front of our bed. And as the trial was going on, I used to lay on there and just, just complain about how I put my family in a difficult situation. And my wife named that the therapy couch. Um, but so I did the trial and we discovered a lot. We discovered that it does improve um, endothelial function. It did improve pain. And we actually did an objective measurement of nerve conduction velocity. Well, it turns out 
that at the 80 milligram dose of our drug, after 12 weeks, we saw an improvement in nerve conduction velocity. And this is a completely objective measurement. And that's huge for diabetics. This is actually mechanistically making a difference. Um, then we did some more studies on nephropathy and, and we saw improvement in BUN and creatinine. So I just think that this could be just an excellent lifestyle drug for diabetics in addition to treating pain and peripheral artery disease. So where we're at in the process, we uh, very recently had a meeting with the FDA, our end of phase two meeting, uh, and they sort of, well, they gave us the green light to proceed with what's called a registration trial. So as you take a drug through approval, I think everyone knows about phase one, two, and three. At the end of phase three, you have to submit something called an NDA, which is a new drug application. Uh, there's a lot to that uh, in terms of manufacturing and, and a bunch of hurdles you have to jump through. Um, but you have to have a very specific trial called a registration trial. Um, you know, those things are, are rather expensive, but that's actually where we're at right now. So one study away, uh, we started the process in 2014. By the time we complete the study and uh, submit it for FDA approval, I mean, it's probably maybe three or four years from now. Um, so when you think about it, I mean, that's a solid 14 or 15 year run um, to go from very early stage to actually get something FDA approved. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge process and I really applaud your commitment and dedication to helping patients and finding a way to give them something innovative. And it's really just so critical because we can't serve patients at the bedside without people like you who are doing what you're doing and um, taking those risks. And without those risks, like you said, you don't really have the reward. So, you know, thank you for, for doing that. So you've kind of already told us about, you know, some of the cha challenges you've had, but what tips do you have for others who may go through such challenges during the process of innovation and how should they handle those? Well, I think the biggest challenge, especially in biotech startups, is the lack of capital because these things are so expensive and it's a long runway to get a, a drug or a device on the market and generate revenue. So, for example, if I was building an iPhone app, right, I could I could do my app, put it on the Apple store and immediately start generating income. But here the hurdles and the costs are so far and so long that raising that capital is always hard. Um, you know, the second thing that's challenging is, is more of, of managing people, uh, managing personalities, um, setting expectations. I think I've been in situations where I've worked with people, especially early stage. And I mean, everyone thinks they're going to become a billionaire off of some of the stuff. Uh, a lot of it, you know, may never see the market. And also, as you raise venture capital, your shares get diluted. So it's highly likely that by the time you get something FDA approved and had to raise multiple rounds of capital, that you may not have a huge percentage of the company and thus might not have a lot of upside. And if you're a practicing physician and do the math, I mean, sometimes it was probably a better play just to practice, right? Um, and, you know, what you're trying to do with some of these startups, if you're looking for a financial reward, is almost like catching lightning in a bottle. I mean, you know, the ones that really exit for large sums of money uh, are few and far between. Tempering expectations, raising capital, and finding a team you can work with uh, personality-wise are, are hurdles that need to be addressed. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can speak from my own experience that you know a little bit about, but you feel like you're always chasing money. And that is the 
beginning of a, of a successful company. Unfortunately, it's just what you have to do. You got to get people to believe in you. You have to sell your idea. And what you mentioned about teams and leadership and all of that is also really important. Many physicians don't have formal training in that space. And um, I'm actually getting my MBA right now. I know that you have your MBA. What do you think is the value of all these degrees? You know, you graduated college at 19, Amol. Um, you're brilliant. Yet you went and got an MBA. You got all of these degrees. And do you think those things have helped you? Yeah. Oh, boy. They've certainly helped me, you know, um, in many ways. But every time I do it, it's for a specific reason, right? So when I was getting my MBA, um, it's because I was, you know, finishing fellowship and I wanted to build uh, sort of like a network of pain management centers. I wanted to have a surgery center, uh, but I didn't know how to do that. And I found some consultants and they were somewhat expensive, but then I, f I found an MBA program uh, and in talking to people there and interviewing and seeing that, I kind of realized that for as much as I pay a consultant, I could do an MBA, make building a pain management center my thesis, and then use professors and everyone there sort of as free consultants. Uh, and it really worked out for me. Uh, my other degrees, I have uh, two masters in science. Um, and as I mentioned before, both are from Ivy League schools, Dartmouth and Brown. Um, but those programs were very tailored to specific um, startup activity or work that I was doing. Um, you know, I, I want to take a step back and tell you something about challenges um, because something just popped into my head. And I remember raising capital early on for my stuff, 2008, nine, et cetera. And there was a, when you raise capital, there's this road in um, the Silicon Valley called Sand Hill Road. And that's where like a lot of the major VCs are that can write really big checks, right? And so you almost go on this this show where you're you're visiting these places and there was, groups that were there around the same time as me, and some of them were getting funded. And I couldn't understand why, because I looked at what they were doing and I just felt that my stuff was so much better, right? You know, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos was raising money, right? She didn't get VC money, by the way. Well, she got she got some, but, but, but the same VCs that passed on me, you know, passed on her. But I, I sat there and I watched, I was like, wow, she's raising all this money. And I was just so impressed with that. You know, and um, of course, we work out of Newman was raising a ton of capital at that time, and I just never understood it. Um, There's somebody that had a STEM startup that raised a lot more money than me, and they passed on my company in favor of theirs. And I just thought, wow, mine's so much better, right? So eventually, I did get funded, uh, as I told you, right? I got funded by by uh, one of the blue chip VCs. They passed on me earlier, and and I asked them why, and they told me something very telling that you may not know about me. But uh, about four years ago, when I was working really hard, you know, I really wasn't taking care of myself. And so it's probably about 40 pounds heavier. Uh, I was working a lot. So I really just trusted the science. So I went and saw this VC and he told me that he didn't actually care to give me money because he looked at me and he said he didn't think I could take care of myself. So how am I going to take care of his money? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you were overweight. It didn't look like your hair was combed. Your glasses were really dirty. And I looked down and I could see the blue of your shirt. I like wearing blue shirts, so you can tell. I see the blue of your shirt because your fly was down. And I thought, man, this guy doesn't have it together. So, you know, why would I fund this person if he can't even take care of himself? And I started thinking about the other people that got funded and they had that piece, right? Elizabeth Holmes was very presentable, very articulate, 
dressed very well and took care of herself. And I noticed that those other people that were getting funded did the same. And I thought, wait a minute, if I want to get funded, I need to maximize all the variables I can control. I can control my weight. I can control combing my hair. I can control coaching myself to be articulate. So I need to do all of those things and check all of those boxes. In addition to having science that works and having a program that will be effective, I need to make sure that I'm maximizing stuff to get my return. And that's just another piece of advice to think about, that people do look at the intangibles, you know, um, and, and they look at external factors. And it's important to make sure you have those identified and addressed. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. First of all, I would have never known that because you're incredibly articulate. And every time I've met you, you look extremely together. But um, that is so true. And, and, you know, they say in our business school classes, people really invest in people as much as they invest in products. And so you have to present yourself as a person that they want to invest in. And you're selling yourself as much as you are selling whatever you're pitching. And that is just such a critical component. And it's hard to sometimes keep up with yourself when you're working so hard and you're grinding. And we talked about you're chasing capital and you're failing and you're trying to just stay above water, right? Um, And you might be you know, putting your family at risk and doing all kinds of things in order to get where you need to go. And so that's very understandable how you could get yourself in a situation where you're not taking the best care of yourself. And um, that is just, just so important. So thanks for sharing that. So Amal, I know we're talking about your pharmaceutical pursuits primarily today, but you have inventions and patents and funding in the neurostimulation market, as you kind of mentioned, and just this incredible history in entrepreneurship. Is there anything else you want to say before we close out today? Sure. You know, um, one of the things that I've done, especially in neurostimulation, is really try to understand the modeling behind it, you know, how it works and, and why it works. And as I do that, you start to realize that there are opportunities out there. And it's not that people haven't thought of them. They have. It's just that these big billion dollar companies only have so many resources they can devote to so many things. So I started playing around with stuff um, to try to literally create any waveform I wanted to create, uh, to do anything I I wanted to do. And and I was doing this with RF ablation. uh, And I realized that um, you could buy an old RF generator, this radionics generator on eBay for like $400. And it, it really has every single feature out there because the current machines, they have software that prevents you from sort of hacking them and doing stuff with them. So bought this old radionics machine, sort of connected it with with other machines and daisy chain things together and started playing around with algorithms, right? And, And learning stuff and those things become patents and sometimes they become companies. And I guess I'm saying this because it's important to always be inquisitive and to think about things. Uh, and to go out there and, and do stuff. And so one of, another example of that is low-dose naltrexone, right? So I, I didn't invent low-dose naltrexone. That's been around forever. People have been talking about it. And I've often wondered, like, you know, what is the hurdle, right? Why isn't this being developed more? Uh, and, and I discovered why. Well, it's off patent and, and all this stuff. And I, and I also learned that there's a program called an orphan drug designation, that if you get a drug designated as orphan, um, you get seven years of market exclusivity from the FDA. So I thought, well, wait. So um, complex regional pain syndrome is an orphan disease by definition, and low dose naltrexone really seems to treat that. So I formulated a, a you know a novel version of naltrexone. We have a, a formulation that works. That's that's new and distinct. It's patentable. 
Um, and then I applied to the FDA to get an orphan drug designation. And, you know, I subsequently got that. Now we're sort of off to the races because we have this opportunity to, to get it out there. And so what I'm saying is there are opportunities out there right now today um, that people can really capitalize on, you know, if they go for it. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and a common theme that I'm seeing throughout everything you're saying is really just be creative and find solutions. And if you can do that, then you can be innovative. And it doesn't mean that you're building something from scratch, but perhaps even repurposing something or creatively finding a way that something that isn't working as well as it's working can work and capitalizing on that. So there are many ways to innovate and um, not everyone has to be patenting things in order to be an innovator. So that's something to keep in mind. And um, you know, with that, you know, Amal, thank you so much for being here today. I think your expertise is like unparalleled and we're so excited to have had you on our show. Thanks to the APM for this podcast, and we will see you next time on Pain Matters. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters podcast. If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.